Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now, which we're hoping is going to be a lot of fun. On the line is my amazing team. Uh, they're, you know, I can see them, I can hear them, but I can't touch them, which is the way it should be, especially with you, Chris KP. Good morning. Hello, and that is a massive relief for both you and I, at least, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Good morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I don't think I'll get involved in that conversation. It seems a bit risky to me. Yeah, you're a hugger from way back. I am. I'm a hugger yeah, from way back. <laughs> uh, doc- COVID, COVID times are tough times for huggers. Yeah, they sure are. Dr. Ewan, not, not so much a hugger? No. Well, I've been, I've been trained to be when I think by my lovely wife, but um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just have this image of you sort of walking through the house, arms by your sides, and Jen just coming up and sort of <laughs> hugging you like, ah, let me go, let me go. Yeah, yeah it's like ambush, 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 hug. ambush hug. Yep. <laughs> no, that's why we have a dog because you won't let me do that anymore. <laughs> and Chris KP probably just hugs himself. There it is. I have to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not happy about it, though. Anyway, the good news is, folks, uh, we've had about uh, 15 minutes, me and the team, chatting about all the things pissing us off with COVID, so we're, we're ready now to move into some more positive science news, uh, which uh, yeah, it took about 15 minutes to get that out of our systems. But, Dr. Ewan, do you want to start us off with what's going on? Sure. I thought I'd talk about hummingbirds because hummingbirds are awesome. Um, oh, yeah. There's many reasons they're awesome. <clears throat> Their wing beats can, uh, they can do more than 80 wing beats uh, in a second, which I find unbelievable. They can see non-spectral colours, so things like purple, but also combinations of ultraviolet and other colours that we can actually see. Um, that's pretty neat. Um, but there's a study that just came out in the Royal Society of London uh, about the fact that it appears that hummingbirds can actually count, or at least the sequence of numbers. And so... There's a species of hummingbird called the rufous hummingbird, which itself actually migrates up and down the North American um, um, uh, continent. And it um, has this uh, incredible ability to basically choose which are the juiciest and and, uh, best flowers, it appears. Um, And bear in mind, too, these these are tiny critters, obviously. So um, a male hummingbird weighs about three and a half grams. And Mm. for a bit of um, trivia for you, um, a nickel, um, for North American listeners, weighs about five grams apparently. So they, they weigh less than a nickel. But what they did was in this study, they wanted to actually see whether they could actually um, reliably pick the juiciest flowers in a sequence of flowers because these males have territories and they defend these territories quite vigorously. So uh, for people who've seen hummingbirds in the wild, you will actually see this where the males actually fly away and they're quite, a, quite aggressive um, to other males and they defend these areas yeah, quite, quite um, vigorously, but they need to know where the best flowers are. And so what they did, which was pretty cool, they actually waited for these birds. Uh, this study was done in Colorado. They waited for these birds on their annual migration, and in advance they put these artificial feeders with um, this sweet sort of nectar in there, and they waited for the birds to turn up, and the birds started feeding on them and defending those um, artificial feeders, and then they captured them. They captured, uh, I think it was 10 males, and they, they marked them, And then they trained these birds to feed on these artificial feeders. And then what they did was they got 10 feeders um, and only one had the sugary reward in it and the rest didn't. 
And they learned very quickly that number one was where the, the sugar was and almost, um, you know, without fail, they went to that first one. And then what they did was they started changing the sequence up. So they started making number three or number four. And essentially without fail, these little hummingbirds worked out that, you know, it was number three or number four and they would go to that reliably each time. So now it's been shown in the past actually with things like guppies and rats and a whole range of other species in lab conditions that um, animals can actually work out sequences to, to get rewards and so forth. But this is the first time this ability has been demonstrated in a wild vertebrate. So in the actual wild setting, you know, what's the actual benefit of this? And clearly, of course, if you're a hummingbird, and you're flying around, you want to know where the best flowers are so that you can actually go to them quickly. So it's like being mm -hmm. in the supermarket. If you want to get your noodles or you want to get your vegetables, you don't want to you know, walk around the whole supermarket trying to find it. You're going to find the quickest way to get to what you want to get, right? And so it appears that the hummingbirds can do this. So pretty pretty neat little uh, trick mm. that these hummingbirds can do. Yeah, phenomenal stuff. They're just phenomenal creatures. That idea of 80, yeah. 80 beats per – and, you know, I like to think that what about the weight of a – or mass of a chocolate-coated sultana or, you know, a couple – Yeah, they're <laughs> tiny. Yeah, they're Ridiculously tiny. Small. Yeah, but incredibly yeah. complicated. Good stuff, Dr. Yeah. Ewan. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? I want to talk about ears because, you know, ears are maybe not quite as cool as hummingbirds. You know that saying when you say, oh, yeah, he perked up his ears or those kids over there, when they heard whatever, they perked up their ears. Mm. And none of us think that, you know, as humans, we actually do what dogs or horses do. You know, you've seen a dog hear a sound and immediately mm. the whole ear kind of shifts and you know what they're listening to. Yep. But really interesting research came out of Germany this week suggesting that, in fact, we kind of do the same thing. So it turns out that these muscles around our ears actually become active the moment we hear a new or a particularly loud or an unusual sound and our ears do actually focus on the direction that the sound is coming from but as you can imagine our ears don't look like they're moving so they had to do some snazzy science to work this out what this research showed was that we have a very rudimentary um, muscular orientation system around our ears that once would have controlled the movement of our outer ears. But they reckon this muscle system is kind of like a neural fossil. You know, at some point, they think around 25 million years ago, humans lost the ability to turn our ears around the way other animals do. But some of the musculature is still there. And they used a tool, a technique called surface electromyography. So they basically put sensors on people and they could detect the electrical activity of these muscles that once would have been responsible for our ears either moving or changing shape. Mm. And the, mus the muscles are still there active. It's just that they don't still control the ear in any kind of meaningful way. But then not only did they show that the, the musculature is responding to sounds in different directions, they did these high-definition video recordings of ears and it turns out our ears do still move. It's just that they're really tiny movements. So, you know, next time like, next time someone says, can you wiggle your ears, you can say, dude, I wiggle my, my ears all the time. It's just that they're really, really, really little wiggles. But the researchers pointed out this could be really important for, um, you know, improving hearing aids, for example, where we can work out how to harness this ability to focus in a particular direction on important sounds and do better at shutting out and ignoring irrelevant sounds. But I just love this idea that in some primitive form, the muscles are still there. It's just that our ears can't kind of do the, the dog swivel anymore. But it's cool I, I stuff. Would, uh, I, 
I want to know why we lost that ability because it seems like a pretty um, cool advantage, right, to have. Like I've yeah. always been envious of um, kangaroos. Anyone seen kangaroos? They can twist their ears in in opposite directions with the different ears. I'm like I want to be able to do that. Like surely if someone's coming up behind you with a big spear and it's going to kill you, having an ear that can turn around and like you know pick that up. It, like, that's it wouldn't make famous, right? it wouldn't make it, it'd make wearing glasses really difficult. Um, <laughs> a face mask. But, but, but I, or face mask, but I also I love the idea that um that because yeah you've seen those like um prosthetic hands and stuff that respond to uh you know neural signaling we could actually get fake ears that respond to these muscle yeah. signals and have our ears move around. Yeah, we I mean they don't, they don't know why we get, like, I reckon it was about twenty five million years ago that we lost it, but but what you said totally makes sense. I mean, it would be really advantageous to still be able to do that. Yeah, I wonder if we're, uh, do we do we have that sort of nostril effect too? Like, if I smell something bad, do my nostrils sort of flare a little bit and I sort of cringe back a bit? I mean, how many of these subtle things are we forgetting that we can do? You know, like a, you see, you know, dogs smell something awful and they they really, you know, they. They turn their noses up pretty quick. Rolling it. Yeah, <laughs> they roll in it. Yeah, they do. Now, uh, Chris KP, your audio is sounding a, a bit like something rolled in something. So uh, let's see how we go here. But you're a little oh, cra- bad. Oh, you're a little crackly, buddy. You're a little crackly. It could be my voice. I'll do my best. Okay. Uh, I, so, so I guess um, I, I feel like uh, you know. Initially, I was thinking I'm going to be right in. You know, I'm going to be right in the same stream as uh, as you and talking about cool animals, but I've just changed my mind because what I want to do is talk about four-eyed fish, um, but specifically about their genitals. But let me just give you a bit of a background here first. So these are these are fish that are really good at swimming on the surface of the water because they've effectively got, they've got four eyes. They've got um, eyes that are basically separated, two on each side, separated by a little thin layer of tissue. One set are good at looking above the water through the air. One set are good at looking under the water through the water. Um, and then they, they have separate retina, which then send down a, a common optic nerve so they can pick up all this extra information, And which means that they can look out for predators, but also means they can feed both on things that are above the water and below the water. They, they often live in intertidal areas, so being able to see above and below is very useful for them. They also um, give birth to, to live young as opposed to from eggs. Um, so they're a little unusual in many ways. But their breeding is unusual too because um, – if and you've got to try and use your imagination here, which I'm sure you'll be okay with um, – the male genitals are basically transformed anal fins, but the tip bends to the left or to the right, which is in itself neither good nor bad. It's just the way it is. The female genitals have a flap which likewise goes from left to right or right to left. And if you then push your imagination a little bit further, that means that a left-directed male genital is going to struggle to get into a left-directed female flap, if you like. Um, and so lefty females can only mate with righty males and righty females can only mate with lefty males. Um, and so the question is, is this random, um, I guess, and does it lead to, um, you know, to, to, to left-sided male produce lot, mainly left-sided offspring? Anyway, so uh, researchers from the University of Constance went and looked at this in both captive and in, in, uh, in natural or wild populations. And the first thing they found is that, no, um, there is no advantage and there is no um, change in, in, uh, in demographics you like. Basically, they found that all the offspring that were produced were asymmetrical with a near equal proportion of left and right. So it didn't matter which combination you started with, you got the same thing at the end. They also found that there was basically no specific genetic markers associated with 
uh, with with the asymmetry. So basically, they're gone. There just seems to be a totally random thing. It doesn't matter who your parents are. You're an equal chance of being a weird lefty and a weird righty, <laughs> which is interesting. I mean, it's a weird evolutionary trait to have. It's interesting that it seems to be totally random. What was not clear from the paper or from the other two papers that I briefly looked at <laughs> around this is how they know. Um, I'm just not sure whether they just try it out and go, yeah, no, that's not cutting it. I've got to find myself somebody else. Mm. Which could take, which could be a long time. And let's face it, it's like tossing a coin. You know, it's meant to be 50 50, but if you're really looking for tails, and let's face it, they are, you might end up getting lots of heads, or at least it might seem that way. Chris, it's always good to have you on the show because you bring the <laughs> aspects of ecology that none of us would find. I, you know, I can see the two ecologists on the bottom of my screen here. Just hello, look at it. Chris KP's found another sex story. <laughs> it's a big story. No, so sorry, yeah. dad joke at the end there, Chris. Too, I didn't, I didn't miss that as well. The joke yeah. about tails. So, nice yeah. Thank you, thank you. I mean, you dragged <laughs> you dragged me in with the talk about the different optical requirements above and below the water. I mean, that's well, really. Well, I thought you'd like that. Yeah, that's that's cute. Because they've actually got they've actually they've actually got uh, their lenses thicker at, at one end than the other to cope with the change in uh, in refractive index. It mm. is very interesting optics. Yeah, yeah, you don't see that every day. There's quite a few things here that you don't see every day. Well, you, actually, maybe you do, and we just don't know it. You know, we're fully clothed walking around. Maybe we have similar properties, and we're just not sure about this. Uh, something for you to do in your spare time, Chris KP? Yeah, yeah sure. Chris, Chris was momentarily lost for words for a second there, and I haven't seen that in many, many occasions. Oh, I, I just... I'm just thinking. I'm just trying to think of what it is below my clothes that um, that, that I need to explore. I, I mean, this I, I feel like it's unwise in in this you know current weather. But uh. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think yeah. Let's leave it at that. Cause <laughs> that's probably all we need to talk about. <laughs> It's certainly uh, we're getting into the groove of this now with Triple R. We've got the Radiothon coming up in you know a month or so, which is going to be fun. So no idea what that's going to look like yet, but it's going to be bloody awesome. I tell you that much. So uh, we'll It'll be amazing. We will work something out and uh, work out how we're going to get all the voices in the studio at the same time. But it will be it will be cool. There's no there's no doubt about that. It'll be an important one this year. So you and Jen, Chris, thanks for doing news again. Great to see you all, and um, we'll chat to you in a Great few weeks. Yeah, likewise. Have a great show. We have our first guest on the line now. Her name is Dr. Amy Haley. She is a senior research fellow at the Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University. Good morning, Amy. Hi, Shane. How are you going? Good. It's, it's, look, it's great to talk to you. We've been trying to keep, tee up this uh, interview, I think, for a few weeks now, you and I. But um, I wanted to get you on because you're looking at something I don't think we've ever discussed on the show, but it's the use of the drug ketamine. Um, for, I guess, pre-anesthesia work. But before we get into that specifically, tell us a bit about ketamine as a drug. I mean, I think most people would remember it as a you know horse tranquilizer or something. Yeah, so ketamine is kind of, it's interesting in that way. I guess it's got a bit of a, um, a dual sort of use. So some people are more familiar with its use in, say, veterinary medicine mm-hmm. um, or human medicine, but then also on the other side of that is people's use in recreational settings. Um, So that's something other entirely. So basically ketamine has 
a pretty well-established history of use in human medicine. So it was developed in about the 1960s, um, specifically to uh, replace what's called phensilidine, so PCP. So ketamine is essentially a PCP derivative. Um, PCP was used for anesthesia, but what they were actually finding was people were having these sort of adverse reactions when they were having an emergence from the anesthetic. Mm-hmm. So um, psychotic, uh, psychotic disturbances and things. So ketamine essentially has a little bit of a safer uh, safety profile um, and it does have a wide safety margin. So it's quite unlikely that, you know, the doses which are used for anesthesia or analgesia are actually going to cause any long-term uh, adverse effects. Mm. So its use as a, um, as a recreational drug is a little bit more interesting, I guess. Um, it was also used in about the 60s, so um, in, in the uh, west coast of the U.S., in about the San Francisco Bay Area. So it was used a lot for raves and those sort of squat parties and things like that. So, um, you know, I guess it's used in a way for the same sorts of um, effects, so the kind of dissociative anaesthetic states. Mm, um mm. So yeah, it's and, quite an interesting history. And I mean, I've I've seen it in use clinically in you know with with family members and the like over the years. And in some cases, I know it's used as a pain as a pain sort of um, killer, I suppose. But something that I'm not sure if it removes the pain or makes you less aware of the pain. But it's used as a pain management tool as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, got what's called a dissociative um, property. So essentially, it's and it's able to produce a analgesic effect whilst not sort of uh, inducing this respiratory depression, which we see with things like propofol. Um, And so it's easily reversible as well with um, antagonists. So you can sort of induce this rapid state of anaesthetic um, action, and then it's also rapidly reversible. The only thing that we find with ketamine, and I guess is, again, comes back to that its use as a recreational drug, is sometimes at the doses that you need to have a higher level of pain relief, it also um, unfortunately induces these what's called psychotomimetic effects. And so you get this off-target effects like hallucinations and sort of um, sometimes a bit of distress from uh, patients if they're not quite familiar with those effects. And so in that, in that um, sense, it is often used with other drugs like fentanyl. And so what that does is it kind of uh, offsets some of those more negative effects and can produce a more effective anaesthetic um, Unfortunately, as we know, there are obviously some issues um, with fentanyl, so things so other opioids as well, particularly surrounding their long-term use after sort of routine anaesthetics or mm. um, for analgesia. Mm. And so essentially that's where my research is hoping to come in is looking at you know, ways that we can leverage the good effects of ketamine with the drugs which aren't opioid-based. And so we're specifically looking at this drug called uh, dexmedetomidine, which is a little bit different. So this is what's called an alpha-2 agonist. Um, so it's essentially acting anaesthetic. So whilst it's um, it does have these really good properties, it, um, as similar to ketamine, has some issues when it's used in isolation. So it can create um, sort of what's called a... Um, a depressive effect on on respiratory rate. And so when we use these two drugs in combination, they essentially can um, effectively offset the more negative effects of those drugs when they're used by themselves. Right, right. Now, talk us talk us through like what's happening in the sort of anesthetic process. I mean, these are are these used pre that process or part of that process? Like, 
how, how exactly does that work? Like when I go in, I'm getting surgery. There's a range of drugs. I've seen you know all the vials hanging off the the back of the bed that I get. I mean, what what happens at what time, and what's the goal at each time as you go through? Yeah, so um, specifically with ketamine, it can be used, I guess, really at any stage. There's differing levels of evidence of its efficacy at different points. So in some uh, instances, we can see that ketamine used before surgery, so as a pre-medication, can actually reduce the need for opioids during the surgical procedure um, and also during the post-operative period. So Often people undergoing a major surgery will have what's called patient-controlled analgesia afterwards, so where you can sort of self-administer your um, pain relief. And what we find is that in some instances where people are given ketamine, um, particularly uh, in combination with other other drugs, it reduces the overall need for opioids in both the immediate surgical period and afterwards. And so that's really, um, I think, quite important because if we're looking to reduce the use of opioids, you know, not only in a surgical setting but afterwards because it's often that period of use after a major surgery is where people are unfortunately um, sort of build up a bit of a tolerance mm. and they're sort of finding mm. themselves you know, using these, more of these drugs over time and obviously we so, know that that's... So let me just ask there, do, do you mean even after they've departed from hospital? So... Yes. So, that, I mean, that's quite profound. I mean, so normally when you go in, I've seen this in a lot of circumstances where people will have like a morphine button or whatever that they can push. But you're saying if instead you're using ketamine instead of that, then that that longer term, I guess, fall into, you know, your, your panadines, your other, your other opioids um, is substantially reduced just by swapping out morphine for something like ketamine. Yeah, so it wouldn't be an entire swap out of morphine, but it might be that you can reduce the amounts of, say, fentanyl and Mm -hmm. ketamine. So when they're used together, they're fantastic. Um, And as I said, so a lot of the time ketamine can offset some of those negative effects. And what it actually does is really just reduces the overall need, which then I guess will um, also... Give it, it's a bit of a protective factor against how yep. often or how frequently people need to use pain relief in the sort of um, recuperative period. Mm. So, I mean, this is obviously, well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as though this is not in widespread use at the moment, especially in Australian hospitals. So what what's needed now to progress this further? Because it, it sounds, you know, it sounds in principle like a really smart move yeah. to reduce that, um, you know, that dependence that people have on opioids. Yeah, absolutely. So it's... It, Ketamine is actually, I think, used a bit more frequently than people um, are aware. It's, it's used most predominantly in um, pediatric medicine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also really good, as I said, like in small doses, so it can be quite um, easy and it's quite fast-acting. So sort of what we're looking to do is, um, yeah, look at these other drugs and whether they're um, as effective as this sort of traditional treatment as usual standard, which is the ketamine and fentanyl. And so... Essentially, this is sort of the, the current study which we're doing builds on some research which we've done in a few years sort of leading up to this was looking at things like the neurocognitive and sedative properties of ketamine first, first in first instance by themselves and then looking at a combination of ketamine and fentanyl as compared to ketamine and dexmedetomine when provided intravenously. And so 
Obviously, intravenous uh, use of drugs or administration of drugs is always preferred because it's more rapid acting. Mm -hmm. um, but for obvious reasons, it's not always achievable. So uh, patients might not have a feasible or viable vein, or they might be combative, or there might be you know a whole number of reasons. So we're looking at whilst we have a sort of established you know, the essentially that the ketamine dexmedetomidine combination is as effective as ketamine fentanyl, we're looking at different alternative routes. So what we're doing is looking at it as an intranasal uh, solution. The reason being it's a little bit more accessible and it might be that we're able to sort of provide a route of administration which would be easier for patients um, and easier for healthcare professionals mm. as well if you're sort of looking at its use in sort of pre-sedation or yeah. after surgery. So just a nasal spray? Yeah, and yeah. nasal spray, pretty, pretty yeah. easy, not very threatening, not like a needle. <laughs> yeah, is, is there a dose issue there? Like, can you control the dose effectively enough? Yeah, so that's that's one of the things that we're trying to find out. So the solution that we're looking at, so it's something called Ketadex. It's pretty self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking at really comparing these three different doses um, and looking at the clinical and the safety profile. And so... The little solution that we'll be using is a self-titrating dose. So essentially you have, say, so you get two sprays or one spray and you get a pretty reliable um, dose which is provided. And so the more sprays, the more dose. And so what we're going to do is test sort of like a low, medium, high range mm. and look at things like sedation, uh, sedation profile, analgesic profile, pain, um, also looking at uh, neurocognitive performance, which I think is important as well for patient care and sort yep. of patient comprehension of clinical instruction. Yeah. Well, look, Amy, it's, it's a fascinating area. Um, we've only got about 30 seconds to go. Do you, uh, do you need to recruit people? Is that part of the process at I this do, point? Yes. So we're looking, we're looking for healthy men and uh, women age 18 or sorry, age 21 to 45 who have no pre-existing medical conditions, have no history of drug abuse, um, and have, have not had any major nasal surgeries. Um, but I'm recruiting and I am hoping that all things considered with COVID-19, we can start testing by the end of this year at Monash Medical Centre in Clayton. Sounds good. Well, if you share the stuff with us on Twitter, we will um, spread it around for you and hopefully you'll get the people that you need for the trial. It sounds like a really interesting area of research and it's good to see uh, more solid understanding of some of these quite older drugs actually being used effectively. Amy, thanks so much for joining us on Einstein & Go-Go today. Thanks, Shane. It's good to chat to you. It's Dr. Amy Haley from the Center for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University. Three, triple, We have our second guest for today on the line now. He's coming in all the way from Perth, Dr. Eric Howe from the ARC Center of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery in the Department of Physics, Maths and Computing at the University of Western Australia. Good morning, Eric. Hi, Dr. Tate. Shane? It's great to talk to you. Um, you work in one of these areas. That we've, we've spoken about this so many times on the show, and uh, I think we've covered a lot of different areas of gravitational um, waves and you know the, the initiation of the, the first experiments and the first detection and all these things, and I've, I've gotten pretty excited over this over the years. But recently, um, you and your team, you've, been, you've sort of been looking at some data from back in August, which is pretty astounding by the looks of it. Tell us a bit about what, what you've been looking at there. Yeah, well, this this is a paper that um, it came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and this is a collaboration paper. Uh, so that's this is one thousand um, authors mm. uh, of LIGO, 
Um, and I should say that the Centre of Excellence that I'm a part of, that's got about 200 members. Yep. Uh, and a lot of those members are, are, are in LIGO as well. Um, so this is the first of a few papers that will come out from this present uh, observing run that started in um, third, yeah, the, the April uh, 2019. It only finished in March. So it was a year-long run. Uh, finished a month early because of COVID. Yep. So lot, lots, you know, everything's been affected uh, uh, pretty much. Um, and this is the first of a series of papers that, that, that's going to be coming out with exceptional events from this this run. Um, so this event, um, it, it was called uh, GW 1908-14, mm-hmm. which is pretty much the, the date yep. uh, when it was discovered. Um, it was discovered by three... Uh, the three LIGO detectors. So we've got two in America, uh, Hanford and Livingston, and we've got one in Italy mm-hmm. as well. Um, Hanford actually was, wasn't in observing mode, um, but it was still taking good data. Uh, so they were able to get three um, uh, gravitational wave interferometer data for, for this event. It's quite loud. It was a signal-to-noise ratio about 25, uh, which, um, which, which we tend to call... Uh, 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 we tend to talk in terms of false alarm probability. Mm, so, right, yep. so that means that it, once in 42,000 years, you'd expect a noise event uh, to produce a similar signal. So it's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we sent out an alert um, to the wider astronomical community, um, uh, the, you know, the EM detectors and telescopes uh, and neutrino detectors so to see if they can uh, uh, um, see anything um, uh, in the error region, which was pretty compact. It was about 18 square degrees, um, which, which is quite enormous when you think that the, the, the moon's about 0.2 of a square degree. Yep. That's yep. pretty big in the sky. So it's still a lot to look at, but it's the second most compact um, uh, uh, sky area that we've ever seen. And, and just, to, I mean, just to clarify for people there, the reason to do that is, uh, my understanding is because the, the gravitational waves like get to us uh, somewhat sooner than any electromagnetic radiation or any other signal because the, the you know, light goes around stuff, whereas the gravitational waves do not. So we've got a bit of lead time to have a look and see if we can see something. Is that right? Well, it, 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 it travels at the speed of light. So uh, you'd expect something at pretty, pretty similar, mm. uh, pretty similar time. Um, there was a slight delay um, between – there was a famous event in, in 2017. Mm. And that was two neutron stars yep. that collided. Um, and, and we get a lot of tidal disruption of the, of the, of, of the material. And we did see some light. Uh, and um, uh, we, 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 we saw radio. Um, uh, we saw X-ray. Yep. Uh, and, of course, the gamma rays, which, which came at this slight delay of about one uh, – uh, 1.4 seconds or, or yeah. something like yeah. that, uh, but but that could be the the, the process that the accretion mm, yeah, that causes yeah. yep. the, the gamma gamma ray burst. We, we're not quite too sure. There's been a few theories for that, hmm. um, but that but actually that event was a really good test of the speed of light as well. Hmm. Um, but um, but it's, in terms of this event, um, we didn't expect to to see. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit that, about that in a minute. Um, uh, it was it was quite a distant event in in, um, in th- this event in 2017 that was about 42 megaparsecs, uh, which is about 100 million light years, um, and that was the closest event we've ever seen. This one was 
around about 240 megaparsecs, which is about 800 million light years away. And a lot of gravitational waves tend to... Uh, uh, that's the sort of regime that we sort mm. of get mm. get them from. Um, but it means that light's been travelling an awful long, long time. Long time, yeah. yeah. So I, th- I think multicellular organisms were all that was around yeah. on the Earth. Uh, and the closest event, I think, there was dinosaurs roaming the Earth when that signal started yeah. travelling. So, so, so we're, we're so talking we've, great So we've picked, up, we've picked up a disturbance here. What... And what was the actual event itself? Do we do we have an idea of what that yeah. could be? Yeah. So um, all gravitational waves are pretty exceptional for lots of reasons, which um, and I'm sure you've had people on mm. the show talking about how difficult it is to to detect these and how fantastic the um, the interferometers are. It's really, mm. you know, uh, it's stuff straight out of Star Trek that yep. we can do really. Um, um, but but uh, th- this particular event, um, it was composed of uh, two. Uh, two bodies so so it was um um one of the components was um we talk in terms of solar masses that uh, 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 bodies in terms of the mass of the, the sun so it was about 26 uh, solar masses with the was the largest uh, body and the other one was uh about, around about 2.6 um so so that's the largest mass asymmetry that we've ever seen. Hmm. In other words, the, the difference yeah. in masses are a, it, nearly a factor of one to ten. Yeah. Um, so that that the previous record was about one to four. Okay. Uh, so yep. that that was that was a surprise. Um, we're pretty sure that the that the the larger the body is a black hole. Yep. We've seen lots of black holes yeah. around about that sort of size. Yep. Uh, in fact, the very first. Black hole uh, uh, gravitational wave event was roughly two thirty thirty. Mm. So what's the event. small one? Now, then? now the second one, uh, we're not quite too sure, and that, that's that's the really interesting part here. Um, now, it's in a region around about two two point six solar masses. It's, it's in a region that we call the mass gap. So the mass gap is between about two uh, uh, solar masses up to about five. And we don't tend to see very much in that area. Um, now, whether this is because uh, it's a, a selection bias, maybe, or, or maybe yeah. stuff doesn't exist. Now, we know the heaviest neutron star that we know about, uh, that's about 2.1 okay. uh, solar yep. masses. Uh, uh, and the lightest black hole uh, that we know about is around about 5 uh, solar masses. That's from X-ray surveys. So this is that, um, so that so we've only got about thirty seconds to go. But so that means this is either the heaviest neutron star we've ever seen or the lightest black hole we've ever seen, right? So it's yeah. a win either way, or it's something in the middle that we haven't seen before. Is it, I mean, that's right. Yeah, uh, and it's very hard to untangle this. I should note that the event that we were talking about earlier in two thousand and seventeen, um, that the, the, when the two neutron stars. Uh, merged the component was around about 2.7 mm. uh, solar masses that was yep. left behind so it might not uh, be completely on it <laughs> on its own in there but we we suspected that that was a black hole and we're sort of leaning towards this being a black hole yeah. as well but we can't definitively um say so just to sort of find out the good news is um in about one one and a half to two years um so the detectors are off at the moment. Uh, they're going to come back at a greater sensitivity. So that means mm-hmm. we can see more volume of the universe. Yep. Yep. And we should be able to see a, a few more of these and start filling the gap. Yeah. And then we can really start to uh, sort of un- un- untangle 
yeah. uh, what's happening. We should, should see more. more oh, look, it's a, it's a fascinating area, Eric. And I think, you know, we're, we're just seeing so much new astronomy occurring as a result of these new experiments and yeah. just seeing the universe. It's like all of a sudden, you know, when someone started building radio telescopes, you know, after just using optical for so long, the, the universe just opened up in a new way. And we're seeing that again now with, with LIGO and, and all the gravitational wave detectors. Yeah. And, and it must be a fascinating area to be in. Th- thanks so much for chatting to us today and we'll, we'll keep our eye oh, open on this welcome, i think it's show. yeah it's really uh it's really a, a great it's a great area yeah. and i think anyone who's interested in astronomy you know it's a golden age to get into uh in it's in this space it's, yeah. it's great um good Particularly chatting in australia yeah no, absolutely yeah good chatting and, and um good luck with the ongoing work thanks eric thank you very much dr shane have a great day you too mate on the line i've got dr laura good morning Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're looking perky. Long time, no speak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Listeners, just an FYI, Dr. Laura and I had a uh, a drinky session over Zoom last night, which was a bit of fun. She told me about how much care she's taking as an immunologist to keep herself COVID-free. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And now I thought we would discuss something that is highly debated by scientists. And it's something that I think I'm a little bit pro and maybe you're a little bit more con. Yeah. So and just to give people some backstory to this discussion, I suggested we talk about noctilucent clouds and you said no. And I couldn't work out why because they're so bloody interesting. They're amazing. And there's even some great photos at the moment of the comet in the northern hemisphere with these cloud layers. It's just spectacular stuff. And you said that you couldn't pronounce it, so we couldn't do it. If I can't pronounce it, I can't work with it, Shane. Yeah. you got to keep it simple. I want to talk about Aegis Aegypti instead because I can actually pronounce that. But I did promise you I'd also come armed with fun facts. And I feel I have. If we're going to talk about mosquitoes, I thought I would let you know that mosquito means little fly in Spanish. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That, that is a fun yeah, fact. Yeah, super cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, always, yeah. I love to bring the fun facts in. So um, mosquitoes, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're bad. I like talking about the deadliest animals in the world. So mosquitoes are meant to be, like they are arguably the deadliest animals in the world. They spread so many nasties, mm. malaria, chikungunya, I can pronounce that, Zika, West Nile, dengue. And here's another fact. There are more than 3,500 species of mosquitoes, and the programs that are trying to eliminate mosquitoes are only trying to get rid of the one. Yeah, the cockroach three and a half of mosquitoes. Yeah, okay. So it's only one species. It's not like you're trying to, you know, eliminate the panda. It's just one out of three and a half thousand. So only a handful of mosquito species can actually spread disease. Okay. And Aedes aegypti is um, is one of the real baddies. So um, that species can can spread Zika, dengue, chikungunya. So the programs that are out there at the moment, um, and there's two major ones which I'll touch on. They're trying to eliminate um, this Aedes aegypti. Might be some pros to cons to it. We can get to that. So um, the first one that you might have heard of, because um, a lot of work's being done on um, Monash University, and it it was formerly called the Eliminate Dengue Program, but now it's called the, let me get this right, the World Mosquito Plan. And this is where you introduce a naturally occurring bacteria, Wolbachia, into mosquitoes. This renders um, the mosquitoes sterile. You release the male mosquitoes. Now, if you're concerned about a lot of male mosquitoes just being released by your house, bear in mind that male mosquitoes don't bite, and they only live seven to ten days. It's the females that live longer and will bite you and spread diseases. So um, they're releasing some friendly mosquitoes, you know. And, and in 2011, um, they did a huge deployments up in Cairns. Um, and 2011, this was part of the Eliminate Dengue program. By 2015, we're very low incidence in dengue now. 
There's been um, further releases in um, Townsville pretty recently. And so so that's one of the programs. It's operating in, in, sev- in several different countries so, now. But So can I ask a question? Yeah. So, so is the reduction in transmission of these diseases due to a reduction in overall numbers of mosquitoes because of um, you know, more males? Or is it because there are plenty of mosquitoes, but there's mainly males out-competing the females, and only the females can bite us and cause problems? So their offspring are dying. So the the um, sort of engineered males are mating with the females, out-competing the wild males, and then the offspring aren't surviving. Right. And so this is what's happening in, in the second um, sort of, you know, um, eliminate mosquito program, which is like really in the news a lot at the moment. And this is led by a British-led biotech company called Oztech. And there have been huge field trials in Brazil over the past few years. And the reason why it's in the news at the moment, people are calling it a potential Jurassic Park experiment um, that was in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, is um, they're going to release 750 million mosquitoes in, in the Florida Keys and in Texas. Yeah, that's, and and that's, different, so that's, like, that's a lot of mosquitoes. That's a lot of mosquitoes. Like, I read it was slightly over a billion in the end in, yeah, in, in Florida end. alone. And that's... You've you got to imagine that's enough mosquitoes to kind of outcompete a lot of the other mosquitoes, right? Yes, and that's, and that's the point. So with these mosquitoes, um, they are genetically modified and they, have, they contain a – it's actually a pretty neat system. They um, have a lethality gene and a fluorescent reporter. So then you can go into the wild and say – well, not into the wild, into Florida or wherever – and say, you know, which mosquitoes are which? Do they fluorescent yep. yeah, red? Yes, it's working. Um, and so these mosquitoes have this lethality gene, so the um, the larva, the offspring, don't survive. So you might be wondering how are they getting these like mosquitoes, which are genetically modified, out in the first place? And in the laboratory, they're fed tetracycline, which is essentially an antidote to the lethality gene, so it inactivates that. And so you can at least get these um, males to adulthood, release them. They go balmy in the population. There's so many of them; they will outcompete the wild males mate with the females and 96% of the offspring will die. Now, that's important now, the 96%, because there's a lot of concerns over the 4% of genetically modified mosquitoes which are surviving yeah. and whether that will create some, like, crazy hybrid that would yeah. be Like the incredible, to inse- incredible hulks yeah. of the mosquito world. They could be. Yeah. They could and, be. And when you say they die, the offspring die, my, my understanding is that they, they live for a period but they don't live to adulthood. Yeah, they um, they don't get to adulthood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is an interesting scenario because one of the questions I always ask, and I've had a lot of guests over the years where they've come in and we've talked about this, and I've often said, well, what what is the effect of removing these disease bearing mosquitoes on other populations of mammals, etc., in the environment? And often the answer I'll get is, ah, oh, that's oh, I don't work on that area. I'm thinking, yeah, well, gloss over that. Yeah, gloss over <laughs> that. I'm thinking, well, you know, is there a, a you know problem rat that's numbers are kept in check by this? Is there a <laughs> you know is there a bird that feeds on these things exclusively? Like to me, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna add something to the ecosystem that is engineered, you better have a pretty damn good idea of what the flow on effects will be. I mean, how how much has that been thought about? Well. I thought about it for you, Shane, with my, you know, <laughs> great background as an well, I feel better now. Obviously, I know, I know nothing, but I use Google. Yeah, okay. And let me, let me tell you some facts. Okay, I've got a fact which I really want to share with you because I think it's really fun. So um, the main predator of mosquitoes is the bat. Did you know that a single bat eats 6,000 to 8,000 insects per night? 
That's so a I think effort. that they can reduce on those numbers. That's a big <laughs> effort. I think they can do without, a, you know, the 80s Egypti. They've, they've got all those other thousand species. Yep. It's not like, you know, so, you know, and there's other insects as well. There's no um, single predator which relies on just mosquitoes. And remember, it's only getting rid of the disease vector mosquitoes. Yep. So it's sort of, if you kind of weigh up, you know, so, okay, also, what do mosquitoes do for the environment? Well, they pollinate stuff. You know, mm -hmm. the females, yes, are drinking your blood and mammals' blood. But the males, you know, the friendly males are just, you know, pollinating and drinking nectar. And so the worst-case scenario is losing a few orchid species. I think when you weigh up saving millions of lives from Zika, I think I can, I can live with that. You can trade up some orchids, but what eats the orchids? Oh, yeah. You there see where I'm going? chain of life. Yeah, yeah, there's I this do. thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a chain of life chain thing. Of life. It's, so it, it is fascinating to me that there is this... Um, it, you know, this release, to me, you know, we talk about things like, um, you know, the experiments we do and how they translate into the real world. But the only way to really do that here would be to set up something, you know, the size of the Melbourne Cricket Ground with a biosphere in it. And yeah, one run of those this little experiment. Domes. Yeah, run this experiment for 10 years with the insect release and just see what the flow and effects are. I mean, we, we see in Yosemite, you know, changes all throughout the ecosystem as a result of the reintroduction of alpha predators with the wolves, like all the way down to certain trees and all sorts of things. Um, stream quality. This, this seems to me as though something that we may be skipping over. Yeah, I mean, having like the survival of genetically modified mosquitoes in the population is a concern. And I guess it's more long lasting, but they're sort of of how mosquitoes are being controlled at the moment is a huge concern anyway, mm. because insecticides are incredibly expensive. Florida alone spends yep. over a million a year on insecticides and they kill the bees. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, That's bad. a lot of people have very strong feelings about, you know, saving the bees. So, um, you know, I'm. I'm still pro. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's there's a lot of pushback from the public. I mean, it's easy to be pro when you're not like, say, living in Florida and you're not yeah, about to have, yeah. you know, 750 genetically modified mosquitoes rain down on you. That might concern me a little bit more. And then, say, you know, you run into problems, say, if they're being released in Brazil, and say, if some are surviving, and then they're crossing international borders, um, that might be a, a bit of a political mm. issue as mm. well. Neighboring countries may not have agreed to have genetically yeah, modified yeah. insects released on their populations. I, I suppose for me too. I mean, when you talk about the work being done at Monash, it's interesting. This is a public institution. This is you know government funded and so forth. But we're, we're talking about a private company doing this in in Florida, whose goal is to get contracts for the release of genetically modified insects. Yeah, and they keep having to do it as well because the, with the Wolbachia program, that's self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. The Wolbachia is out there in the population, whereas here you need to continually release the mosquitoes. But that's so perfect if you're you, a private company because then you yeah, keep exactly. getting the contracts. Yeah, exactly. you're a private yeah. company. They, permanent, they were releasing half a million mosquitoes per week for 27 weeks in one of the Brazil um, yeah. hotspots. So, yeah, that's, that's a lot of money-making right there. Well, you know, I'm not going to bring up cane toads, but I should. Um, I think we, we need to, you know, I think there's some care here that um, just because, you know, what's the line from uh, Jurassic Park? Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Um, you know, like it's uh, it's it's a bit, uh, seems to me as though there should be a bit more work. But uh, you're pro, I'm, I'm, I'm against, you know, it's the way it is. We're never going to agree on everything, Dr. Laura. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Yeah, well, that's the pro line. Let's see what happens. The next line is let's not see what happens. Let's let's take take our time and work this out. Hey, tell me before we uh, run out of time quickly, what have you been doing um, in your uh, lockdown? Because you can't go to the Doherty Institute. You're locked down somewhere in North Melbourne, which is a totally you know infected suburb. Yeah, 
Um, I'm wearing a matching red jumper, which matches my dog's red jumper. So, you know, yeah, I've been dressing up my dog a little, you know, you got to pass the time, bring some joys in, you know, a lot of, lot of jigsaws. Well, I'm still, I'm still, um, yeah, obviously I can't go into work, which, you know, is a real shame, but I'm just on zoom meetings all the time with, with the laboratory and so forth. But yeah. yeah. And you become a bit of a Lego, Lego connoisseur. Oh, do you have to bring that up on air? No, I'm, I'm not ashamed. Yes, 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 I am. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, I miss being in the lab. Like, yeah. so I, uh, I get to build. Yeah, you get to build. Building the Taj Mahal right now. Yeah, the Taj right. Mahal. How many pieces? Yeah. Um, several thousand. Holy crap. You know, yeah. I'm no amateur, Shane. No, I, no. I, I completely see that. I mean, you don't win the PM Science Prize and not be able to build a Taj Mahal out of Lego. That goes without go, saying. Go, go hard or go home. <laughs> <you know? laughs> well, Laura, look, it's been great chatting to you. I think uh, interesting uh, discussion that we had. Um, we will get you to say knock the loose in clouds at some stage and we'll talk about those down the track. I think that will be fun. Um, but thanks. I'll have to practice with you first. Yeah, we'll, 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 run, we'll run it for you a few times. <laughs> but thanks for, for doing this with me and uh, have a great Sunday and we'll chat to you in a week or so. Pleasure. Good I'll to- speak to you soon. Good Thank to see you. you. Bye. Uh, that was Dr. Laura, folks. Uh, bunkered down there somewhere in North Melbourne. Um, we uh, we do what we can. Uh, we're going to have to hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's uh, science is everywhere at the moment, and it's um, not always being listened to, but we do our best to get people to pay attention. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks again for listening to Triple R. Stay safe, stay at home, and wear a mask if you can. And whatever you do, don't throw it into the ocean. We're going to start taking care of all this because it's going to get real dicey real soon. Have a great Sunday, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.